Book Two, Chapter Nine of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches, Chapter Nine, Appearance and Disappearance. Arthur, my dear boy," said Mr. Meagles on the evening of the following day. "Mother and I have been talking this over, and we don't feel comfortable in remaining as we are. That elegant connection of ours, that dear lady who was here yesterday, I understand," said Arthur. "Even that affable and condescending ornament of society." pursued Mr. Meagles, may misrepresent us, we are afraid. We could bear a great deal, Arthur, for her sake, but we think we would rather not bear that, if it is all the same to her." "'Good,' said Arthur. "'Go on.' "'You see,' proceeded Mr. Meagles, "'it might put us wrong with our son-in-law. It might even put us wrong with our daughter, and it might lead to a great deal of domestic trouble.' You see, don't you?" "'Yes, indeed,' returned Arthur. "'There is much reason in what you say.' He had glanced at Mrs. Meagles, who was always on the good and sensible side, and a petition had shone out of her honest face that he would support Mr. Meagles in his present inclinings. "'So we are very disposed, our mother and I,' said Mr. Meagles, to pack up bags and baggage, and go among the Alongers and Marshongers once more. I mean we are very much disposed to be off, strike right through France into Italy, and see our pet." "'And I don't think,' replied Arthur, touched by the motherly anticipation in the bright face of Mrs. Meagles. She must have been very like her daughter once. "'That you could do better.' And if you ask me for my advice, it is that you set off to-morrow." "'Is it really, though?' said Mr. Meagles. "'Mother, this is being backed in an idea.' Mother, with a look which thanked Clennam in a manner very agreeable to him, answered that it was indeed. "'The fact is, besides, Arthur,' said Mr. Meagles, the old cloud coming over his face, "'that my son-in-law is already in debt again that I suppose I must clear him again. It may be as well, even on this account, that I should step over there, and look him up in a friendly way. Then again, here's mother foolishly anxious, and yet naturally too, about Pet's state of health, and that she should not be left to feel lonesome at the present time. It's undeniably a long way off, Arthur, and a strange place for the poor love, under all the circumstances. Let her be as well cared for as any lady in that land. Still it is a long way off. Just as home is home, though it's never so homely. Why, you see," said Mr. Meagles, adding a new version to the proverb, "'Rome is Rome, though it's never so romely.'" "'All perfectly true,' observed Arthur, "'and all sufficient reasons for going.' I am glad you think so. It decides me. Mother, my dear, you may get ready. We have lost our pleasant interpreter. She spoke three foreign languages beautifully, Arthur. You have heard her many a time. And you must pull me through it, mother, as well as you can. 
"'I require a deal of pulling through, Arthur,' said Mr. Meagles, shaking his head. "'A deal of pulling through. I stick at everything, beyond a noun substantive, and I stick at him, if he's at all a tight one.' "'Now I think of it,' returned Clennam, "'there's Cavalletto. He shall go with you, if you like. I could not afford to lose him, but you will bring him safe back.' "'Well, I am much obliged to you, my boy,' said Mr. Meagles, turning it over. "'But I think not. No, I think I'll be pulled through by mother. Cavaluro, uh, I stick at his very name to start with, and it sounds like the chorus to a comic song, is so necessary to you that I don't like the thought of taking him away. More than that, there's no saying when we may come home again.' and it would never do to take him away for an indefinite time. The cottage is not what it was. It only holds two little people less than it ever did, Pet and her poor unfortunate maid Tatty Coram, but it seems empty now. Once out of it, there's no knowing when we may come back to it. No, Arthur, I'll be pulled through by mother. They would do best by themselves, perhaps, after all, Clennam thought. Therefore he did not press his proposal. "'If you would come down and stay here for a change, when it wouldn't trouble you,' Mr. Meagles resumed, "'I should be glad to think, and so would Mother too, I know, that you were brightening up the old place with a bit of life it was used to when it was full, and that the babies on the wall there had a kind eye upon them sometimes. You so belong to the spot, and to them, Arthur.' and we should every one of us have been so happy if it had fallen out. But let us see. How's the weather for travelling now?' Mr. Meagles broke off, cleared his throat, and got up to look out of the window. They agreed that the weather was of high promise, and Clennam kept the talk in that safe direction until it had become easy again, when he gently diverted it to Henry Gowan and his quick sense and agreeable qualities when he was delicately dealt with. He likewise dwelt on the indisputable affection he entertained for his wife. Clennam did not fail of his effect upon good Mr. Meagles, whom these commendations greatly cheered, and who took mother to witness that the single and cordial desire of his heart, in reference to their daughter's husband, was harmoniously to exchange friendship for friendship, and confidence for confidence. Within a few hours the cottage furniture began to be wrapped up for preservation in the family absence or, as Mr. Meagles expressed it, the house began to put its hair in papers. And within a few days, father and mother were gone. Mrs. Ticket and Dr. Buchan were posted, as of yore, behind the parlour blind, and Arthur's solitary feet were rustling among the dry-fallen leaves in the garden walks. As he had a liking for the spot, he seldom let a week pass without paying a visit. Sometimes he went down alone from Saturday to Monday, sometimes his partner accompanied him. Sometimes he merely strode for an hour or two about the house and garden, saw that all was right, and returned to London again. At all times, and under all circumstances, Mrs. Ticket, with her dark row of curls, and Dr. Buchan, sat in the parlour window, looking out for the family return. On one of his visits, Mrs. Ticket received him with the words, "'I have something to tell you, Mr. Clennam, that will surprise you.' So surprising was the something in question, that it actually brought Mrs. Ticket out of the parlour window, and produced her in the garden walk, 
when Clennam went in at the gate on its being opened for him. "'What is it, Mrs. Tickett?' said he. "'Sir,' returned that faithful housekeeper, having taken him into the parlour and closed the door, "'if ever I saw the led-away and deluded child in my life, I saw her identically in the dusk of yesterday evening.' "'You don't mean, Tatty, Coram, yes, I do,' quoth Mrs. Tickett, clearing the disclosure at a leap. "'Where?' "'Mr. Clennam,' returned Mrs. Tickett, "'I was a little heavy in my eyes, being that I was waiting longer than customary for my cup of tea, which was then preparing by Mary Jane. I was not sleeping, nor what a person would term correctly dozing. I was more what a person would strictly call watching, with my eyes closed.' Without entering upon an inquiry into this curious, abnormal condition, Clennam said, "'Exactly. Well?' "'Well, sir,' proceeded Mrs. Tickett, "'I was thinking of one thing and thinking of another, just as you yourself might, just as anybody might.' "'Precisely so,' said Clennam. "'Well?' "'And when I do think of one thing, and do think of another,' pursued Mrs. Tickett, "'I hardly need to tell you, Mr. Clennam, that I think of the family, because, dear me, a person's thoughts—' Mrs. Tickett said this with an argumentative and philosophic air, "'however they may stray, will go more or less on what is uppermost in their minds. They will do it, sir, and a person can't prevent them.' Arthur subscribed to this discovery with a nod. "'You find it so yourself, sir, I'll be bold to say,' said Mrs. Tickett, "'and we all find it so. It ain't our stations in life that changes us, Mr. Clennam. Thoughts is free. As I was saying, I was thinking of one thing, and thinking of another, and thinking very much of the family, not of the family in the present times only, but in the past times, too.' for when a person does begin thinking of one thing and thinking of another in that manner as it's getting dark what i say is that all times seem to be present and a person must get out of that state and consider before they can say which is which he nodded again afraid to utter a word lest it should present any new opening to mrs tickett's conversational powers in consequence of which said Mrs. Tickett, when I quivered me eyes, and saw her actual form and figure looking in at the gate, I let them close again, without so much as starting, for that actual form and figure came so pat to the time when it belonged to the house, as much as mine or your own, that I never thought, at the moment, of its having gone away. But, sir, when I quivered my eyes again, and saw that it wasn't there, then it all flooded upon me with a fright, and I jumped up. "'You ran out directly?' said Clennam. "'I ran out,' assented Mrs. Tickett, "'as fast as ever my feet would carry me. And if you'll credit it, Mr. Clennam, there wasn't in the old shining heavens, no, not so much as a finger of that young woman.' Passing over the absence from the firmament of this novel constellation, Arthur inquired of Mrs. Tickett if she herself went beyond the gate. 
went to and fro and high and low said mrs ticket and saw no sign of her he then asked mrs ticket how long a space of time she supposed there might have been between the two sets of ocular quiverings she had experienced mrs ticket though minutely circumstantial in her reply had no settled opinion between five seconds and ten minutes she was so plainly at sea on this part of the case and had so clearly been startled out of slumber that clennam was much disposed to regard the appearance as a dream without hurting mrs ticket's feelings with that infidel solution of her mystery he took it away from the cottage with him and probably would have retained it ever afterwards if a circumstance had not soon happened to change his opinion he was passing at nightfall along the strand and the lamplighter was going on before him under whose hand the street lamps blurred by the foggy air burst out one after another like so many blazing sunflowers coming into full blow all at once when a stoppage on the pavement caused by a train of coal waggons toiling up from the wharves at the riverside brought him to a standstill he had been walking quickly and going with some current of thought and the sudden check given to both operations caused him to look freshly about him as people under such circumstances usually do immediately he saw in advance a few people intervening but still so near to him that he could have touched them by stretching out his arm tatty corum and a strange man of a remarkable appearance a swaggering man with a high nose and a black moustache as false in its colour as his eyes were false in their expression who wore his heavy cloak with the air of a foreigner his dress and general appearance were those of a man on travel and he seemed to have very recently joined the girl in bending down being much taller than she was listening to whatever she said to him he looked over his shoulder with the suspicious glance of one who was not unused to be mistrustful that his footsteps might be dogged it was then that clennam saw his face as his eyes lowered on the people behind him in the aggregate without particularly resting upon clennam's face or any other he had scarcely turned his head about again and it was still bent down listening to the girl when the stoppage ceased and the obstructed stream of people flowed on still bending his head and listening to the girl he went on at her side and clennam followed them resolved to play this unexpected play out and see where they went he had hardly made the determination though he was not long about it when he was again as suddenly brought up as he had been by the stoppage they turned short into the adelphi the girl evidently leading and went straight on as if they were going to the terrace which overhangs the river there is always to this day a sudden pause in that place to the roar of the great thoroughfare the many sounds become so deadened that the change is like putting cotton in the ears or having the head thickly muffled at that time the contrast was far greater there being no small steamboats on the river no landing-places but slippery wooden stairs and foot-causeways no railroad on the opposite bank no hanging bridge or fish-market near at hand no traffic on the nearest bridge of stone nothing moving on the stream but watermen's wherries and coal-lighters long and broad black tiers of the latter moored fast in the mud as if they were never to move again made the shore funereal and silent after dark and kept what little water movement there was far out towards midstream at any hour later than sunset and not least at that hour when most of the people who have anything to eat at home are going home to eat it and when most of those who have nothing have hardly yet slunk out to beg or steal 
it was a deserted place, and looked on a deserted scene. Such was the hour when Clennam stopped at the corner, observing the girl and the strange man as they went down the street. The man's footsteps were so noisy on the echoing stones that he was unwilling to add the sound of his own. But when they had passed the turning, and were in the darkness of the dark corner leading to the terrace, he made after them with such indifferent appearance of being a casual passenger on his way as he could assume. When he rounded the dark corner, they were walking along the terrace towards a figure which was coming towards them. If he had seen it by itself, under such conditions of gas-lamp mist and distance, he might not have known it at first sight, but with the figure of the girl to prompt him, he at once recognised Miss Wade. He stopped at the corner, seeming to look back expectantly up the street, as if he had made an appointment with someone to meet him there, but he kept a careful eye on the three. When they came together, the man took off his hat, and made Miss Wade a bow. The girl appeared to say a few words, as though she presented him, or accounted for his being late, or early, or what not, and then fell back a pace or so behind, by herself. Miss Wade and the man then began to walk up and down, the man having the appearance of being extremely courteous and complimentary in manner, Miss Wade having the appearance of being extremely haughty. When they came down to the corner and turned, she was saying, "'If I pinch myself for it, sir, that is my business. Confine yourself to yours, and ask me no question.' "'By heaven, ma'am,' he replied, making her another bow, "'it was my profound respect for the strength of your character, and my admiration of your beauty.' "'I want neither the one nor the other from any one,' said she, "'and certainly not from you of all creatures. Go on with your report.' "'Am I pardoned?' he asked, with an air of half-abashed gallantry. "'You are paid,' she said, "'and that is all you want.' Whether the girl hung behind, because she was not to hear the business, or, as already knowing enough about it, Clennam could not determine. They turned, and she turned. She looked away at the river, as she walked with her hands folded before her, and that was all he could make of her without showing his face. There happened, by good fortune, to be a lounger, really waiting for some one, and he sometimes looked over the railing at the water, and sometimes came to the dark corner and looked up the street, rendering Arthur less conspicuous. When Miss Wade and the man came back again, she was saying, "'You must wait until to-morrow.' "'A thousand pardons?' he returned. "'My faith! Then it's not convenient to-night?' "'No. I tell you I must get it before I can give it to you." She stopped in the roadway, as if to put an end to the conference. He, of course, stopped too, and the girl stopped. "'It's a little inconvenient,' said the man. "'A little, but wholly blue. That's nothing in such a service. I am without money to-night, by chance. I have a good banker in this city, but I would not wish to draw upon the house until the time when I shall draw for a round sum." "'Harriet,' said Miss Wade, "'arrange with him, this gentleman here, for sending him some money to-morrow.' She said it with the slur of the word gentleman, which was more contemptuous than any emphasis, and walked slowly on. The man bent his head again and the girl spoke to him as they both followed her. Clennam ventured to look at the girl as they moved away. He could note that her rich black eyes were fastened upon the man with a scrutinising expression, 
and that she kept at a little distance from him, as they walked side by side to the further end of the terrace. A loud and altered clank upon the pavement warned him, before he could discern what was passing there, that the man was coming back alone. Clennam lounged into the road towards the railing, and the man passed at a quick swing, with the end of his cloak thrown over his shoulder, singing a scrap of a French song. The whole vista had no one in it now but himself. The lounger had lounged out of view, and Miss Wade and Tatty Coram were gone. More than ever bent on seeing what became of them, and on having some information to give his good friend Mr. Meagles, he went out at the further end of the terrace, looking cautiously about him. He rightly judged that, at first at all events, they would go in a contrary direction from their late companion. He soon saw them in a neighbouring by-street, which was not a thoroughfare, evidently allowing time for the man to get well out of their way. They walked leisurely, arm in arm, down one side of the street, and returned on the opposite side. When they came back to the street-corner, they changed their pace for the pace of people with an object and a distance before them, and walked steadily away. Clennam, no less steadily, kept them in sight. They crossed the Strand, and passed through Covent Garden, under the windows of his old lodging where dear little Dorrit had come that night, and slanted away northeast until they passed the great building whence Tatty Coram derived her name, and turned into the Gray's Inn Road. Clennam was quite at home here, in the right of Flora, not to mention the Patriarch and Panks, and kept them in view with ease. He was beginning to wonder where they might be going next, when that wonder was lost in the great wonder with which he saw them turn into the patriarchal street. That wonder was in its turn swallowed up on the greater wonder with which he saw them stop at the patriarchal door. A low double knock at the bright brass knocker, a gleam of light into the road from the open door, a brief pause for inquiry and answer, and the door was shut, and they were housed. After looking at the surrounding objects for assurance that he was not in an odd dream, and after pacing a little while before the house, Arthur knocked at the door. It was opened by the usual maid-servant, and she showed him up at once, with her usual alacrity, to Flora's sitting-room. There was no one with Flora but Mr. F.'s aunt, which respectable gentlewoman, basking in a balmy atmosphere of tea and toast, was ensconced in an easy-chair by the fireside, with a little table at her elbow, and a clean white handkerchief spread over her lap, on which two pieces of toast at that moment awaited consumption. Bending over a steaming vessel of tea, and looking through the steam, and breathing forth the steam, like a malignant Chinese enchantress engaged in the performance of unholy rites, Mr. F.'s aunt put down her great teacup, and exclaimed, "'Drat him! If he ain't come back again!' It would seem from the foregoing exclamation that this uncompromising relative of the lamented Mr. F., measuring time by the acuteness of her sensations and not by the clock, supposed Clennam to have lately gone away, whereas at least a quarter of a year had elapsed since he had had the temerity to present himself before her. "'My goodness, Arthur!' cried Flora, rising to give him a cordial reception. "'Doyce and Clennam! What a start, and a surprise, for though not far from the machinery and foundry business, and surely might be taken sometimes, if at no other time, about midday, when a glass of sherry, and a humble sandwich of whatever cold meat and larder might not come amiss, nor waste the worse for being friendly, for you know you buy it somewhere, and wherever thought or profit must be made, or they would never keep the place that stands to reason without a motive still never seen and learnt now, and not to be expected. For, as Mr. F. himself said, if seeing is believing, not seeing is believing, too, and when you don't see, you may fully believe you're not remembered, not that I expect you, Arthur Doyce, 
glad of to remember me why should i for the days are gone but bring another teacup here directly and tell her french toast and place it near the fire arthur was in the greatest anxiety to explain the object of his visit but was put off for the moment in spite of himself by what he understood of the reproachful purport of these words and by the genuine pleasure she testified in seeing him and now pray tell me something all you know said flora drawing her chair near to his about the good dear quiet little thing and all the changes of her fortunes carriage people now no doubt and horses without number most romantic a coat of arms of course and wild beasts on their hind legs showing it as if it was a copy they had done with mouths from ear to ear good gracious and has she her health which is the first consideration after all for what is wealth without it mr f himself so often saying when his twinges came that sixpence a day and find yourself at no gout so much preferable not that he could have lived on anything like it being the last man or that the previous little thing though far too familiar in expression now had any tendency of that sort much too slight and small, but looked so fragile, Besser. Mr. F.'s aunt, who had eaten a piece of toast, down to the crust, here solemnly handed the crust to Flora, who ate it for her as a matter of business. Mr. F.'s aunt then moistened her ten fingers in slow succession at her lips, and wiped them in exactly the same order on the white handkerchief, then took the other piece of toast, and fell to work upon it. While pursuing this routine, she looked at Clennam with an expression of such intense severity that he felt obliged to look at her in return, against his personal inclinations. "'She is in Italy, with all her family, Flora,' he said, when the dreaded lady was occupied again. "'In Italy? Is she really?' said Flora. "'With the grapes growing everywhere, and lava necklaces and bracelets too, that land of poetry, with burning mountains picturesque beyond belief, though if the organ-boys came away from the neighbourhood not to be scorched, nobody can wonder, being so young and bringing their white mice with them most humane, and is she really in that favoured land with nothing but blue about her, and dying gladiators and belvederes, though Mr. F. himself did not believe for his objection when in spirits, was that the images could not be true, there being no medium between expensive quantities of linen badly got up and all increases, and none whatever, which certainly does not seem probable, though possibly in consequence of the extremes of rich and poor which may account for it. Arthur tried to edge in a word, but Flora hurried on again. "'Venice preserved, too,' said she. "'I think you have been there, is it well, or ill-preserved, for people differ so, and macaroni, if they really eat it like the conjurers, why not cut it shorter? You are acquainted, Arthur. Oh, dear, Doyce and Clennam, at least not dear, and most assuredly not Doyce, for I have not the pleasure, but pray excuse me, acquainted, I believe, with Mantua. What has it got to do with Mantua, making for I never have been able to conceive it?' "'I believe there is no connection, Flora, between the two. Arthur was beginning, when she caught him up again. "'Upon your word, no, isn't there? I never did. But that's like me. I've run away for an idea, and having none to spare, I keep it. Alas, there was a time, dear Arthur, that is to say, decidedly not dear, nor Arthur, neither, but you, you understand me, when one bright idea gilded that what's-his-name horizon of etc., but it's darkly clouded now, and all is over.' Arthur's increasing wish to speak of something very different was by this time so plainly written on his face that Flora stopped, in a tender look, and asked him what it was. "'I have the greatest desire, Flora, to speak to someone who is now in this house—with Mr. Casby, no doubt—someone whom I saw come in, and who, in a misguided and deplorable way, has deserted the house of a friend of mine.' "'Papa, see so many and such odd people!' said Flora, rising, that I shouldn't venture to go down for any one but you, Arthur, but for you. I would willingly go down in a diving-bell. Much more a dining-room, and will come back directly, if you mind, and at the same time not mind Mr. F.'s aunt while I'm gone." With these words, and a parting glance, Flora bustled out, leaving Clennam under dreadful apprehension of this terrible charge.
The first variation which manifested itself in Mr. F.'s aunt's demeanour when she had finished a piece of toast was a loud and prolonged sniff. Finding it impossible to avoid construing this demonstration into a defiance of himself, its gloomy significance being unmistakable, Clennam looked plaintively at the excellent though prejudiced lady from whom it emanated, in the hope that she might be disarmed by a meek submission. "'None of your eyes at me,' said Mr. F.'s aunt, shivering with hostility. "'Take that!' That was the crust of the piece of toast. Clennam accepted the boon with a look of gratitude, and held it in his hand, under the pressure of a little embarrassment, which was not relieved, when Mr. F.'s aunt, elevating her voice into a cry of considerable power, exclaimed, "'He has a proud stomach, this chap. He's too proud a chap to eat it!' And coming out of her chair, shook her venerable fist so very close to his nose as to tickle the surface. But for the timely return of Flora, to find him in this difficult situation, further consequences might have ensued. Flora, without the least discomposure or surprise, but congratulating the old lady in an approving manner on being very lively to-night, handed her back to her chair. "'He has a proud stomach, this chap,' said Mr. F.'s relation, on being reseated. "'Give him a meal of chaff.' "'Oh, I don't think he would like that, aunt.' returned Flora. "'Give him a meal of chaff, I tell you,' said Mr. F.'s aunt, glaring round Flora on her enemy. "'It's the only thing for a proud stomach. Let him eat up every morsel. Drat him! Give him a meal of chaff!' Under a general pretence of helping him to this refreshment, Flora got him out on the staircase, Mr. F.'s aunt even then constantly reiterating, with inexpressible bitterness, that he was a chap and had a proud stomach, and over and over again insisting on that equine provision being made for him which she had already so strongly prescribed. "'Such an inconvenient staircase and so many corner stairs, Arthur,' whispered Flora. "'Would you object to putting your arm round me under my pelerine?' With a sense of going downstairs in a highly ridiculous manner, Tenham descended in the required attitude, and only released his fair burden at the dining-room door. Indeed, even there she was rather difficult to be got rid of, remaining in his embrace to murmur, "'Arthur, for mercy's sake, don't breathe it to papa!' She accompanied Arthur into the room, where the patriarch sat alone, with his list shoes on the fender, twirling his thumbs as if he had never left off. The youthful patriarch, aged ten, looked out of his picture-frame above him with no calmer air than he. Both smooth heads were alike, beaming, blundering, and bumpy. "'Mr. Clennam, I am glad to see you. I hope you are well, sir, I hope you are well. Please to sit down, please to sit down.' "'I had hoped, sir,' said Clennam, doing so, and looking round with a face of blank disappointment, "'not to find you alone.' "'Ah, indeed,' said the patriarch sweetly. "'Ah, indeed.' "'I told you so, you know, papa,' cried Flora. "'Ah, to be sure,' returned the patriarch. "'Yes, just so, ah, to be sure.' "'Pray, sir,' demanded Clennam anxiously, "'is Miss Wade gone?' "'Miss—oh, you call her Wade,' returned Mr. Casby, "'highly proper.' Arthur quickly returned, "'What do you call her?' "'Wade,' said Mr. Casby. "'Oh, always Wade.' After looking at the philanthropic visage, 
and the long silky white hair for a few seconds, during which Mr. Casby twirled his thumbs and smiled at the fire, as if he were benevolently wishing it to burn him that he might forgive it, Arthur began, "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Casby.' "'Not so, not so,' said the patriarch. "'Not so. But Miss Wade had an attendant with her, a young woman brought up by friends of mine, over whom her influence is not considered very salutary, and to whom I should be glad to have the opportunity of giving the assurance that she has not yet forfeited the interests of those protectors. "'Really, really,' returned the patriarch, "'will you, therefore, be so good as to give me the address of Miss Wade?' "'Dear, dear, dear,' said the patriarch, "'how very unfortunate!' "'If you had only sent in to me when they were here. "'I observed the young woman, Mr. Clennam, "'a fine, full-coloured young woman, Mr. Clennam, "'with very dark hair and very dark eyes, "'if I mistake not. "'If I mistake not?' "'Arthur assented, and said once more with new expression, "'If you would be so good as to give me the address.' "'Dear, dear, dear,' exclaimed the patriarch, in sweet regret. "'Tut, tut, tut! What a pity! What a pity! I have no address, sir. Miss Wade mostly lives abroad, Mr. Clennam. She has done so for some years, and she is, if I may say so, of a fellow-creature and a lady, fitful and uncertain to a fault, Mr. Clennam. I may not see her again for a long, long time. I may never see her again. What a pity! What a pity! Clennam saw now that he had as much hope of getting assistance out of the portrait as out of the patriarch. But he said, nevertheless, Mr. Casby, could you, for the satisfaction of the friends I have mentioned, and under any obligation of secrecy that you may consider it your duty to impose, give me any information at all touching Miss Wade? I have seen her abroad and I have seen her at home, but I know nothing of her. Could you give me any account of her, whatever?' "'None,' returned the patriarch, shaking his big head with his utmost benevolence. "'None at all. Dear, 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 what a real pity that she stayed so short a time and you delayed. As confidential agency business, agency business, I have occasionally paid this lady money, but what satisfaction is it to you, sir, to know that?' "'Truly, none at all,' said Clennam. "'Truly,' assented the patriarch, with a shining face, as he philanthropically smiled at the fire, "'none at all, sir. You hit the wise answer, Mr. Clennam. Truly, "'None at all, sir.' His turning of his smooth thumbs over one another as he sat there was so typical to Clennam of the way in which he would make the subject revolve if it were pursued, never showing any new part of it, nor allowing it to make the smallest advance, that it did much to help to convince him of his labour having been in vain. He might have taken any time to think about it, for Mr. Casby, while accustomed to get on anywhere by leaving everything to his bumps and his white hair, knew his strength to lie in silence. So there Casby sat, twirling and twirling, and making his polished head and forehead look largely benevolent in every knob. With this spectacle before him, Arthur had risen to go, and from the inner dock, where the good ship Panks was hove down, when out in no cruising ground, 
the noise was heard of that steamer labouring towards him. It struck Arthur that the noise began demonstratively far off, as though Mr. Pancks sought to impress on anyone who might happen to think about it that he was working on from out of hearing. Mr. Pancks and he shook hands, and the former brought his employer a letter or two to sign. Mr. Pancks, in shaking hands, merely scratched his eyebrow with his left forefinger and snorted once, but Clennam, who understood him better now than of old, comprehended that he had almost done for the evening and wished to say a word to him outside. Therefore, when he had taken his leave of Mr. Casby, and, which was a more difficult process, of Flora, he sauntered into the neighbourhood on Mr. Pancks's line of road. He had waited but a short time when Mr. Pancks appeared. Mr. Pancks, shaking hands again, with another expressive snort, and taking off his hat to put his hair up, Arthur thought he received his cue to speak to him, as one who knew pretty well what had just now passed. Therefore he said, without any preface, "'I suppose they were really gone, Pancks?' "'Yes,' replied Pancks. "'They were really gone.' "'Does he know where to find that lady?' "'Can't say. I should think so.' Mr. Pancks did not. No, Mr. Pancks did not. Did Mr. Pancks know anything about her? "'I expect,' rejoined that worthy, "'I know as much about her as she knows about herself. She is somebody's child. Anybody's. Nobody's. Put her in a room in London here, with any six people old enough to be her parents, and her parents may be there, for anything she knows. They may be in any house she sees. They may be in any churchyard she passes. She may run up against them in any street.' She may make chance acquaintance of him at any time, and never know it. She knows nothing about him. She knows nothing about any relative whatever. Never did. Never will. Mr. Casby could enlighten her, perhaps? Maybe, said Pancks. I expect so, but don't know. He has long had money, not overmuch as I make out, in trust to dole out to her when she can't do without it. Sometimes she's proud and won't touch it for a length of time. Sometimes she's so poor that she must have it. She writhes under her life. A woman more angry, passionate, reckless, and revengeful. Never lived. She came for money to-night. Said she had peculiar occasion for it. "'I think,' observed Clennam, musing, "'I, by chance, know what occasion. I mean into whose pocket the money is to go.' "'Indeed,' said Pancks, "'if it's a compact, I'll recommend that party to be exact in it. I wouldn't trust myself to that woman, young and handsome as she is, if I had wronged her. No, not for twice my proprietor's money. Unless,' Pancks added as a saving clause, "'I had a lingering illness on me, and wanted to get it over.' Arthur, hurriedly reviewing his own observation of her, found it to tally pretty nearly with Mr. Pancks's view. "'The wonder is to me,' pursued Pancks, "'that she has never done for my proprietor, as the only person connected with her story she can lay hold of. Mentioning that, I may tell you, between ourselves, that I am sometimes tempted to do for him myself.' Arthur started, and said, "'Dear Mr. Pancks, don't say that.' "'Understand me.' said Pancks, extending five cropped coaly fingernails at Arthur's arm. "'I don't mean cut his throat, but by all that's precious, if he goes too far, I'll cut his hair.' Having exhibited himself in the new light of enunciating this tremendous threat, Mr. Pancks, with a countenance of grave import, 
snorted several times, and steamed away. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine